how do we think about talent in the workplace and really recognizing the only way a business gets off the ground is the talent in which surrounds the business. What we are seeing is how companies are using their physical footprint to create a real-time experience. Our mission, which is to enable deeper, longer, and more meaningful relationships between people and their pets through exceptional quality dog food, root and veterinary science. I'm Richard Gerhardt. I'm Lisbeth Gerhardt. Welcome to Passage to Profit, the show that's all about entrepreneurs, innovation, and the intellectual property that helps them flourish. You've just heard some excerpts from today's show, and it was dynamite, so stay tuned for the rest. Want to patent your invention? The chance is near. You've given it heart. Now get it in gear. It's Passage to Profit with Richard and Elizabeth Gearhart. Tonight on the show, we have Jen Thornton. She's amazing. And she's the head and CEO of 304 Coaching, which helps create high performance teams for entrepreneurs. So you definitely won't miss that. And after Jen, we're going to have Ashish Kashnawal, who actually received an email from Steve Jobs early in his career. And he is the co-founder and CEO of Y Media Labs. And he's going to have a lot of very interesting information. And for all of you dog lovers out there, I know that's half the country, <laughs> half the world at least, Ronaldo Webb has something you really want to find out about for your dogs. But before we get to our distinguished guests, we have IP in the news, which is, of course, as an intellectual property attorney, one of my favorite things. Do you so, remember Evil Knievel? I certainly do. I went and saw him when I was a kid. So he was a daredevil. I almost got his autograph. But I think he was like not able to get up off the ground or something. <laughs> he but. would do stuff. He would dress in this jumpsuit and ride his motorcycle over cars and canyons and I don't know what All else. sorts of stuff. But it like took forever. You'd be there in the audience and it would take him like 40 minutes to warm up. And then he'd kind of ride up to the top of the ramp and then he'd ride down. He'd ride his motorcycle around because he only had one thing. And once the <laughs> jump was over, like it's done, right? So, so he, anyway, he dragged it out it, as long as he could. Anyway, he was very well known. And what, in the 70s, was it? Yeah, 70s Probably. and 80s, yeah. His son, though, has recently sued Disney because they had a character in Toy Story 4 called Duke Kaboom who was similar to Evil Knievel in a lot of ways, but had some differences. One being he was Canadian. Duke Kaboom is Canadian. Well, no, Evil Knievel was American. So this is a cartoon character, right? Yes. Okay. So they had a cartoon character with a guy wearing a white jumpsuit, like Evil Knievel, riding a motorcycle, and I guess jumping over stuff, right? And so- I didn't see Toy Story 4. His, his <laughs> son thought, I guess, that this was a representation of his father, and he sued based on trademark infringement, and he lost. Because Disney changed it enough, was the ruling. Right. And they changed his facial hair. He was Canadian. And those were the reasons that it was not considered infringing. So anyway, anyway. you know, it, you can't beat Disney. I mean, let's face it. Evil can evil against Disney. Evil can evil son against Disney. Oh, give right. me a break. Okay. But now we're going to move on to an actual issued patent. I believe this man wrote his own patent application and he actually got his patent through, which is very unusual. It may be that he's a patent attorney or something, but it, his name is Frank P. Becking from Redwood City, California. This issued August 17th, 2004. And August 17th is her birthday, by the way, for people who want to send presents. But... And that's when I was born. Was too... <laughs> but anyways, most patent applications and patents are extremely dry in legalese. Oh, come Not on. this one. They're fascinating. So his abstract is a a face with glowing eyes returns stare or blinks at onlookers. So it's like a little ghost thing for Halloween, a little mechanical ghost thing with LEDs for eyes. I Says, guess back in the day, when was this? 2002. That was considered a creative idea. When he first wrote it, right. Yeah. So the creature has a pair of empty sockets or under evil brows is where the eyes go. Right. And he says the approach to prop construction described may also be employed for less sinister purposes. <laughs> The title of the patent is Haunting Aid, and I guess you're supposed to use this to haunt people. <laughs> well, of course, but it's like if your movie isn't scary enough, then you're supposed to get one of these and put it in the room while you're watching the movie. Right. And that way you'll be like double scared. So in the background, he talks about other apparatus like this that are 
like scary things with mechanical or electrical features. But then he says, unfortunately, one needs to be a grave robber in order to afford the lip props available today. The present invention is poised to kill this trend. Invention may even be useful in producing mass hysteria. Which we all need more of. Let's it may also honest. find use for other festive occasions, but with different effects. So this <laughs> is this is sort of patent person humor here, because just in case you're not following, but he goes on to say the present invention includes heads, portions of heads, or faces depicted on inexpensive panels, sheets, or layers of material with light emitting diodes position to simulate eyes when it, it may be preferred in many instances the heads not need be dismembered <laughs> so you may want to dismember the head but it doesn't have to be accordingly the invention may include complete if often somewhat decayed or devoured figures with glowing eyes <laughs> so he's really setting the stage there you can just gross people out to your heart's content so and that'll the invention will accomplish its purpose so he was just hilarious so we thought that was funny because you never see that kind of language in <laughs> but obviously he had to do it himself because i don't think a bad attorney would. So, so now it's time for richard's roundtable where our distinguished guests have the opportunity to comment on what they just heard. So if you have thoughts about either of the patents or the patent or the case, or just any other intellectual property topic, please fire away. So we'll go to Jen Thornton first. Jen? Well, I'm thinking that Evil Knievel's brother or son may have a case against the ghost because the ghost is described <laughs> as evil and he's in a white suit. And I think that's the next lawsuit is Evil Knievel's son going I, after the ghost. There I, you go. I think that's hilarious. I hope his son is listening. Kenya, what are your thoughts? Well, I was kind of sad to hear about the Disney situation and Evil Knievel's son because I feel like they were very intentful in terms of how they switch things around to kind of get around the whole likeness, I guess, or using someone's likeness. I feel like they made the character Canadian on purpose. Like they did all these little tricky things to kind of manipulate the situation. So it is Disney, but, you know, I, I was kind of sad to kind of hear that they are really taking people's ideas. Allegedly, yeah. we'll say allegedly. Allegedly. Well, that resonates with me too. Disney could have done something for this guy, or at least somehow acknowledged that it was based on uh, fame that somebody else had spent their lives creating, right? Maybe bought a license or something. I'm sure if you use any Disney stuff, you have to buy a license to do it. My question to you, Richard, is what could his son, Evil Knievel's son, have done to maybe protect the likeness a little better? Like how far can someone go, I guess, in the trademarking process to protect themselves yeah. or can they not? No, it's, it's it's pretty hard. You can kind of work out a series potentially of uh, copyrights. Copyrights are often used to protect cartoon characters, right? Mm -hmm. But even Knievel was a person. So if he had a custom suit made, maybe a design patent, but those kinds of things are tough to protect and you really have to invest a lot. And, you know, Evil Knievel, when he was uh, famous, there was only one Evil Knievel, right? So he, he was like, I don't know that he really ever thought about protecting his brand beyond that in those days. But certainly nowadays, you would think about it. But a good question. It's hard to do for sure. Ashish, what are your thoughts here? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I remember when we tried our first startup, this was 2007, eight, we got a patent infringement letter that, you know, whatever we were building is, you know, very close to, and it, it was like a deal website. And since then, like I realized, unless, you know, you have a very solid case, it's always hard to establish the case. And it feels like that's the case here too. That's a good point. It's interesting that you got a cease and desist letter early on. Yeah, it was like, uh, we launched a site. Uh, it was a deal website and the whole idea was like Groupon. So it was all about, you know, sharing. If you have found a deal online and if you share, then you get part of, you know, the deal because you are the person who's promoting, you know, that particular deal online. And uh, we got a cease and desist letter 
saying that you can't do that because we invented, you know, deal sharing or something like that, which is, you know, I was like, okay. I mean, we didn't fight it much because that startup didn't go anywhere. So the startup was pretty much shut down and that was the end of it. That's certainly a resolution. Maybe not the one that you were hoping for, (laughs) but uh, nonetheless, Ronaldo. My real question is kind of similar to Kenya, but just like a build on that is, has it been documented what different enough actually means or or is this a, you know, you're just really entering into, can you find a good enough lawyer and can you put enough money behind it to really, you know, drive the conversation? So Pep Plate, we have trademarks on, you know, our brand as well as many of our products. And, you know, for me, just kind of hearing these stories, really curious where it's been defined, what similar enough or different enough is, and what are the bodies that, that actually define what that means? No, that's a really great question. And honestly, one that we've never had on Passage to Profit before. So that's, you're an original there. I would say there is no answer in the legal world many times. It's a balance of probabilities. A lot of that comes with the judgment of the attorney. So unfortunately, if you're in a situation like that, you want to hire somebody that's seen thousands of fact patterns and how it's played out. And then based on that, uh, your attorney can say, well, I think if you change this and you change this and you change this, you should be okay. And then sometimes the client comes back and says, well, I don't want to change that. And I don't want to change this. Well, maybe you change this or change this. You'll be okay. But when you're close, there's always a certain level of risk. And so it's up to the entrepreneur to decide, well, how much risk are we going to take? And in the case of Disney, the risk is low because they have so many resources that it makes it hard for somebody like Evil Knievel's son to fight back. Does it matter the judge you bring this case to, or is there like a jurisdiction? Like, how does that all work? Like, did Evil Knievel have a Evil Knievel son, sorry, have a choice as to what judge or who would be determining if Disney or had actually used his father's likeness? You get a choice of forum, which means that he could have probably filed the suit anywhere Disney does business, or he could have filed suit where he lives, or if there was a company involved, he could have filed suit where his company was. And the rules around jurisdiction and lawsuits are kind of complicated, but he does have a lot of choices. He doesn't have a choice, though, on the judge that hears the case. So once it goes into a court, they have a system that divvies up the courts, divvies up the cases. Some judges are more familiar with intellectual property, so it might be assigned to that kind of judge. But you have no control over what judge hears your case. And that is supposedly to lead to some level of impartiality. Excellent. This has been a great discussion. I think now it's time to move on to our fantastic guest. Jen Thornton is here and she's going to be talking about how to build a supercharged team, which every entrepreneurial organization needs. Welcome to the show, Jen. Well, thank you for having me. And I'm excited to talk to all of your entrepreneurs about creating teams and the news right now, we're hearing a lot of things around a worker shortage or, you know, people are leaving traditional jobs and starting their own businesses. I was one of those people myself four years ago. Um, So I think it's such a timely conversation to think about how do we think about talent in the workplace and really recognizing the only way a business gets off the ground is the talent in which surrounds the business. What I tell people and what I love to work on with people is taking their business strategy and creating a talent strategy to go along with that. And too often our business strategy is missing that. And so we know how the product's going to get to market. We know who our target audience is. We know what cost of delivery, anything you can imagine around that business is in a business plan. But typically what is missing is who is actually going to do that work. And that's why businesses fail because we haven't decided how that work's actually going to get done. (laughs) (laughs) I gotta say. Boy, that rings true, doesn't it? And you do need team members that do the actual work. It's tough to say who should do what. And sometimes jobs bleed over into each other. What I like to do at Your Heart Law is like define the process and then hand it off. (laughs) Finding the person to hand it off to has been a struggle. Yeah, the creative part is the fun part lots of times. Well, that's interesting though. So if you're a solopreneur, your team is really like the accountant that you may outsource to the marketing person you may outsource to and you know whatever other the the designer the website maker 
How do you create a talent strategy with those people in mind? That's how I started. It was just me. You know, now we have a team about 10 of us, but there, there was a day where I opened up my laptop and I said, today I'm going to start a business. What the heck do I do next? And so I spent a lot of time thinking about what my wheelhouse was, what I could deliver. And I had to get really honest with what I don't know anything about. And that is okay as an entrepreneur to say, I don't know anything about how to build a website, or I don't know anything about how to set up my business in a way that makes sense legally or the taxes. When you think of all the stuff that needs to be done and you're a solo, get honest with where you do not have knowledge and really start to work in who you need to bring on to help you with those things. And one of the mistakes I see a lot of solo entrepreneurs do is they may start to bring on one person. And so they think about bringing on one full time person and they are like, okay, I need you to do accounting and marketing. And they're asking them to do basically 10 different types of work. And then they think this one person could do it all and do it well. And that doesn't work. You know, we're not that big of generalist in nature as humans. And so if you're a solo entrepreneur, you have to break down those items that need to be done that you do not have the knowledge to do properly and go find experts in each one of those. It's better to find five great people who are experts in what they do and work with those five people in in a small way versus trying to find one person who you think could do it all because those people are few and far between. That's amazing advice. And I have to say, I made that mistake when I was starting out. First of all, I started out doing everything myself. And Elizabeth, of course, she was there backing me up every step of the way. As well as fact, it was her idea that I start the law firm. But there were definitely things I didn't want to do or didn't know really how to do. Like he got these big envelopes that are were file wrappers back in the day. Now everything's electronic, but I was like, I've never seen one of those before. What the heck is that thing? <laughs> But you're right. And the thing was, is I was bootstrapping to go out and start paying people at the time, $100 an hour for five hours a week seemed like a lot of money at the time. And I didn't know how I was going to afford all of the talent. And so if you're strapped for cash, is there a strategy that somebody could employ? There's a couple of different things when you're um, having to think about the budget. There is barter. And some people are open to that. I'm an executive coach and, you know, I have an accountant who's a solo entrepreneur. You know, I could have thought about how to barter with her. That could have been an option. And then in today's world, the nice thing is, is there is the internet. There is YouTube. Um, Verify anything you find on YouTube. You'll find four videos that tell you four different things on the same topic (laughs) and they're all experts. But be very careful about what could crash your business. And those are always anything legal or anything around taxes. And really think about how to make sure you protect some of those things that could be financially a ruin for your organization. Just like our patents, you know, you've come up with an idea. It's really close to someone else's. You don't know that the legal ramifications of that could take down your business. So really focus in on those core things. And then those other things that you can know enough to be dangerous to figure out, jump in and try to do those. Very solid advice. And yeah, I just, of course, I want to amplify that if you're going to create a product or brand that you at least do a search to make sure that you're clear that somebody else doesn't already have the trademark or somebody else hasn't already protected the product because after three years of work and making progress, you may face legal issues when that person finds out and it can be pretty destructive. Even if you decide not to protect it, at least you should know whether somebody else has it. Obviously, you've seen this work, right? You've helped companies put all of this together. What kind of results do you see when all of the pieces are working correctly? So when all the pieces are working correctly, you see a lot of really great things. One of the things that I love to see when I know the pieces are coming together you start to see honesty and truth telling in the workplace. And that is always my soapbox. You, if you do not have a culture in which you can be honest with everyone, if you as a leader can't accept the truth, when someone tells you the truth, then you really are starting to damage workplace innovation and workplace problem solving. All of those things you're actually wanting to do because you create fear of 
knowledge. You create fear of telling the truth. And so when I find organizations where an executive will say, man, I was in a meeting the other day and, you know, we just hired this brand new coordinator and, you know, she brought up to me that this recent campaign we did just didn't connect with her and told me why. And man, I really needed to hear that. Then I know that we're starting to create a culture where people are telling the truth, people are involved, they are able to have a purpose and are connected to what's going on around them. Jen, I wanted to ask you, how did you get into what you're doing now into this coaching and working with executives? What was your motivation to do this? I am a retailer by heart. And, you know, my big dream as a kid was I wanted to work in the mall. And um, good news, dreams come true. And I got to work in the mall. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And I started leading teams at a really young age. And at a very young age, started recognizing who I had on duty that night when I was closing impacted my KPIs. I loved waking up to my KPIs every single morning. And just from a young age, I started figuring out that I connected the dots. Who was on my team had a direct correlation to my business results. And so, you know, progressed many years. I did operations. I went into HR. I've been domestic. I've been in international HR. And time and time again, it was proven that companies or concepts, ideas, new adventures, whatever you're doing, it either is successful or it fails based on the people you put on that project. So after doing that for a lot of years and helping organizations internally as an employee figure out how to create the talent strategy for the new project. You know, I thought, you know what, I want to have some variety and I want to go off and do it myself. And um, a lot of things led up to that, but it was those moments in time. I'll never forget. I was in a boardroom in Hong Kong. Someone walked in and said something and I thought, nope, I'm done. I'm out of here. I'm going to do this on my own. I flew home and started trying to figure it out. (laughs) Um, So that's how I got here today. And, you know, my passion around helping businesses succeed through their talent. So Jen, how do people find you? So our website is 304coaching.com. You can find me on LinkedIn at Jen Thornton ACC, and we can always continue a conversation there. And then um, I also have a YouTube channel, um, Jen Thornton 304 Coaching, where I post um, uh, at workshops, videos, all types of different um, leadership tools that are out there for you. You're listening to Passage to Profit on WOR 710. The Voice of New York will be right back after this. What are entrepreneurs' most valuable assets? Their passion and ideas. We can't protect your passion, but we can protect your ideas. Trust Gearheart Law to protect your ideas with premier patent, trademark, and copyright services. There's never been a better time to start your own business. Contact us at GearheartLaw.com. At Gearheart Law, we have years of experience protecting entrepreneurs' ideas and brands using patent, trademark, and copyright protection. So if you have a new consumer product, a new software application, that you're planning to build or sell or a brand or company name that you want to protect, contact the experts at Gearheart Law, www.gearheartlaw.com. Don't let the wrong protection strategy ruin your business. All of our attorneys are passionate about protection and are licensed and qualified to represent you before the United States Patent and Trademark Office. Don't start your project without calling us first. Contact Gearheart Law on the web at G-E-A-R-H-A-R-T-L-A-W.com. Together, we can can change the world. This ad has been read by a non-attorney spokesperson. Now back to Passage to Profit. Once again, Richard and Elizabeth Gearhart. Now we're on to our executive spotlight, Ashish Tashnawal. Hello, Ashish. How are you doing today? Good. How are you? Good. Ashish is a CEO of Y Media Labs. They're doing all sorts of incredible things, a very innovative company. Tell us a little bit about Y Media Labs, what you do, and some of the types of businesses that you work with. So what we do is we work with different brands on designing and building their digital footprint, which means that let's say you're buying something from Home Depot. So we work with them closely on what the app design should look like, how the mobile should function in store versus when you're you know buying stuff from your living room and how that whole connected journey for a consumer should be. 
we work with a lot of brands, Apple, PayPal, Home Depot, a lot of healthcare brands, retailers, banks, you know, so on and so forth. That's pretty amazing. I think we've all had the shopping cart experience. I find myself spending quality time with my Amazon account almost every evening. Are there new technologies that you can speak about that are related to this journey? Because I think it's really pretty familiar to anybody who's actually ordered anything online. Yeah, I think more than new technologies, I think there are new trends because technologies are always there. It's about a lot more about adoption. Like for instance, COVID has accelerated a lot of trends, which would have happened in the future, but the progress of five years is kind of squeezed into two years, you know, in a lot of ways. And what we have seen is people, generally young people, Gen Z and the millennials, they were a lot more digital friendly and a lot more, more mobile first. But now what we have seen is even the older crowd is a lot more tech friendly, you know, going forward, going through the pandemic. Even, for instance, you know, telehealth, which was never a big thing before pandemic. And now it is becoming the preferred way to connect with your doctor, unless you know you have something going on where you really have to see a doctor physically. Right. Uh, even shopping groceries, the trend of like buying groceries from your couch or picking up grocery was very minimal before COVID. And now it's kind of the thing. But Ashish, don't you think, and I know this from experience, that it's gotten a lot easier to use these tech products. I mean, I remember years ago doing a website and trying to get images onto the site. Now I just do a screenshot with my computer and it has a place I can click a button and on it goes. And with all these shopping things too, even Zoom, like the tech during the pandemic for Zoom increased amazingly, right? Absolutely. I mean, you know, before the pandemic, my parents would struggle using Zoom. And now it's like Zoom is kind of second nature in a lot of ways. When you say things have gone easier, it's also about people have been forced to use some of these things, which were pretty easy to begin with. But then now they have experienced that it's so easy, might as well, you know, use it in your daily lives. I was uh, listening to Gary Vaynerchuk the other day. He said that the largest group of Facebook Facebook users are aged 55 and older. So if you want to target that market, then go to Facebook, which was kind of fascinating. It makes a lot of sense, but yeah. it, it was an interesting statistic because you always think of technology not appealing to an older crowd. I wonder if that statistic would have been true five years ago. And if you couldn't visit your grandchildren in person, you visited them on Facebook and you became more exposed to the technology. Absolutely. I mean, if you're socially distancing, but the need of being social is still there, technology is the only way to overcome that. So Kenya, I mean, you've lived in digital technology probably your whole life. For sure. What's interesting is I wanted to get your take though on like the future of brick and mortar, because I like to shop in the store. Like I'm one of those people that like to touch the actual goods. But I also like to shop online, but have very little patience there if the user experience is poor. But what I've been noticing is that, and Elizabeth, you can attest to this too, because you're a shopper like me. I see <laughs> less and less people in the store. Like, and, and I don't know, even on the weekends when I go, like, I just don't see that picking up as quickly as I thought it would return. So I wanted to just kind of get your take there and like how companies are combating that. You know, the future of brick and mortar is definitely going to be very much experience first rather than retail first or transaction first. What we are seeing is companies are using their physical footprint to create a real-time experience mm -hmm. or, you know, things which they cannot see online. I think that's going to be the future. Have you ever gone to a store called Beta? We have one in our mall here, yeah. Yeah, so if you go to that store, so there's one here, you know, in Palo Alto, and that was the first store when they launched. It's a store where you can experience a lot of these cool gadgets. Have you heard of the device called Terragun? Oh, it's like the thing in the massager, like yeah. that were to work out, yeah. So now it's a lot more popular, but three, four years ago, that was the first time I saw that. And I was like, man, this is kind of game changer. You know, if you're an athlete and so a lot of that type of experience, you know, you're seeing there for the first time and something similar is happening kind of across the board, the new Amazon shopping. So when you enter the physical Amazon shop, you're not just seeing stuff, you know, laid out in the store, you're kind of seeing 
books which are highly rated already. So when the consumers, they are going through the shelves, they know what is probably the best product out there, what customers are saying, which you don't experience typically when you go to any store. I would say, if, for example, if you look at uh, Amazon, they acquired Whole Foods. And so Jeff Bezos must be thinking that part of reaching customers is going to include some sort of retail experience. And he's looking for ways to integrate the brick and mortar experience with the online experience. But just to speculate a little bit, I agree. Only things that you can actually see and then some sort of features where the inventory would be very tightly controlled and it would only be for certain types of products that people really want to interact with. And that's how you would create the experience. Jen. So I love that you brought up telehealth. One of our clients is a small medical network and telehealth seemed really, you know, when that started happening, they were scrambling, you know, what does this mean? They're trying to get their physicians I mean, their providers used to doing telemed and what I love that has come out of that and what we have found within their organization is that people are following up with their doctors. They are making an appointment because they know they can jump on and do it on their lunch break and they don't have that drive time. So I really hope that telehealth continues. I hope our insurance organizations continue to support that here in the U.S. because it is making a difference and people are seeing their doctor when they need to because now it is easier. So I love that you brought that up and I think that's fantastic. So you can find Ashish Toshnawal with Y Media Labs at yml.co. Truly an innovator in the digital space for brands. If you want to get ahead of your competitors, go look at his website. We've come to the end of this segment. If you missed the first part of the show, we had some great advice for entrepreneurs and some great stories. Yeah. So our podcast comes out tomorrow and you can find us on YouTube as well. Passage to Profit, The Inventor Show. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Lisa Askley, the inventress, founder, CEO, and president of Inventing A to Z. I've been inventing products for over 38 years, hundreds of products later, and dozens of patents. I help people develop products and put them on the market from concept to fruition. I bring them to some of the top shopping networks in the world, QVC, HSN, Evine Live, and retail stores. Have you ever said to yourself, someone should invent that thing? Well, I say, why not? make it you. If you want to know how to develop a product from concept to fruition the right way, contact me, Lisa Askeles, the inventress. Go to inventingatoz.com, inventingatoz.com. Email me, lisa at inventingatoz.com. Treat yourself to a day chock full of networking, education, music, shopping, and fun. Go to my website, inventingatoz.com. Passage to Profit continues with Richard and Elizabeth Gearhart. So now it's time for our fabulous media maven, Kenny Gibson, who's also our iHeart representative, and she's going to be putting down her power move. Oh, thank you for having me on today. I always appreciate you both. And for today for Power Move, we're going to talk about Ashton Kutcher, who's been been making power moves in the tech industry. You know, he's a celebrity, he's an actor, he's been doing all these other things in the world of fame, but he's using his fame and fortune to build up the tech space. So he has actually been partnering with a few other investors and he has founded Sound Ventures, which he has a co-founder. It's a venture capital firm that helps tech startups, which I thought was very interesting. But many people may not know this about him. And this is where I thought it was a superpower move, where he's actually a product engineer. And he's even collaborated with Lenovo for an app to help them develop that. So I didn't know that about him. I knew he was doing a bunch of stuff in tech, but did not know in addition to investing, he was a product engineer. So Wow, talk about... Being a renaissance man, you know, actor, app writer, venture capitalist. What doesn't he do? I hear he's quite the charmer as well. I know that we had somebody on the show a couple of years ago with Muse, which is a technology for meditating. And he was one of her investors. She met him in LA. So very interesting that people have more facets to their lives than just the one, right? Yeah, I think celebrities occasionally get a bad rap. I mean, a lot of them deserve it, like R. Kelly, right? But there's also a lot of really smart celebrities too, who can do more than just act. 
So hats off to Ashton. I'm starting to become a fan. <laughs> <Yay>. <laughs> Whatever that means. Maybe, Maybe we'll put you in a movie. <laughs> trust, you wouldn't want to see me in a movie with Ashton Kusher, but we would have him on the show. I will personally reach out to him and see what I can do. All right, Elizabeth, tell us about Fireside. How's that going these days? It's going, still going. So for those of you who don't know what Fireside is, it's Fireside Directory. It's a video directory of small businesses, and there are a whole bunch of moving parts to it. I've done the interviews of the small business owners and put their things on video. And I'm right now I'm kind of in the tech stage. I, I did a lot of interviewing stage, a little bit of tech. We've written a patent application and filed it about a number of tech innovations that we have around this project. But we're still not going to tell you. <laughs> still going <laughs> to keep it under wraps as much as we can. But right now I'm working with the website person because there's a certain way I want the website to look. And that was the challenge was finding somebody who would just do the back end and use my design because everybody that's doing websites now, and I've talked to a lot of people doing websites over this past year during quarantine, they all want to start with the branding and make it this whole branded thing. It's like, this is not the same kind of website as like the Gearheart Law website, for instance. If you want to do that for Gearheart Law, that works. This is... It's different. That's why it's been so hard to find somebody to do the website because they have to kind of get what the project is. And it's hard to explain. There's so many moving pieces to it. That's great. Set your business on fire with Fireside. Kenya (laughs) came up with the tagline, Igniting Connections. I love that. That's probably better And she helped design the logo. She designed the logo too. So uh, yeah, I had some good help there. Now time to go on to our presenter. So would you introduce Ronaldo? I would love to introduce Ronaldo. If you are a dog lover and seriously really love your dog. I know Ronaldo must because what he's come up with is pretty amazing and I'm going to let him explain it. So Ronaldo Webb with petplate.com. Welcome Ronaldo. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm happy uh, just to jump in and tell everyone a little bit about Petplate, you know, really starting with our mission which is to enable deeper, longer and more meaningful relationships between people and their pets. We do this through exceptional quality dog food, uh, rooted in veterinary science. And it all started just based on my experience as a consultant for a number of years. By happenstance, I was staffed at a variety of pet food manufacturers while I was working at companies such as McKinsey and Company or L. Catterton, one of the leading private equity companies in the world. And I just saw all of the ingredients going into like our dog's food. You know, I was able to look at the packaging and see, you know, they would have a picture of steak or chicken breast on the front of a dog food bag. And that was not what was going into the products. Then marry that with, you know, a little bit of people's focus on their own health and well-being. Well, if you look at the health and well-being of our pets, it's a little bit of a bleak picture. 60% of them are obese or overweight. Most are dying of cancer. And I was able to, in my own view, correlate the quality of the ingredients and the quality of the cooking processes with the health outcomes of our pets and animals. So I started cooking for one of my dogs. It really helped manage uh, a stomach issue that he had. And after that, I was really convinced that this was very much, you know, the wave of the future. So when you look at the quality of what's in a standard traditional dog food, it's actually made from what they call the four D's. So dead, dying, disease, and disabled animals. So nothing that goes into standard kibble or wet food that you're feeding your dog or, or, or cat for that matter would actually be allowed to be fed to a human. There's actually someone at a meat slaughterhouse or, you know, wherever this is coming from, usually from, you know, countries outside of the U.S., where they said you cannot feed that to people for whatever reason, whatever was used to kill the animal or or, or how the animal is actually processed. So that's the primary protein source or meat source that goes into kibble. Most people don't know that. Um, yeah. And I don't. Why, why don't we know about this? You know, and this is to be trying to you know lead into. Oh my God, there are, you know three big companies that are evil, yada yada. But at the end of the day, most kibble or traditional dog food is made by Nestle and Mars. And you know, there's been a lot of money in education in terms of this is how you should feed your pets. Uh, a lot of people find it convenient, and a lot of people just almost set it and forget it. We're out to change that at Pet Plate to help educate customers let them know about the quality and the benefits of human-grade dog food, as well as the ability to personalize their pet's meal plans with 
fresh cooked meals that are made only using ingredients you'd feed your family at a USDA manufacturer, shipped to you in convenient containers that are easy to portion. We really are trying to make um, for everyone, you know, we consider our dogs part of our family. We think they should have an experience that's like that. So that's how we've modeled our website. That's how we thought about our customer experience. And that's the level of quality we aim to bring to our customers on a daily basis. Similar, you were mentioning earlier about on Facebook, the largest you know subset of users now are baby boomers, et cetera. Well, now the largest owners of pets are millennials, soon to be Gen Z. And traditionally, I think what you've seen is we don't want to use the same brands as our parents. Uh, we uh, focus a lot more on health, well-being, and nutrition. And that's also been moving in towards our pets. So there's been a trend of better for you dog food, better for you cat food, a trend of humanization of your pets. And I think that companies like Pet Plate are the penultimate of that. And that's where we're you know shooting for. And that's what we hope pet food looks like another 10 to 20 years from now. Yes, the millennials definitely treat their pets like children. I do too, but our cats are overweight. Yeah, but, I mean, but they eat cat food. They have, yeah, they have something they, to eat. But... Somebody feeds them all the time. <laughs> but our son, <laughs> our son and his wife live on a the fourth floor of this apartment complex and their one dog hurt her leg. It's just a 40 pound dog. Mm. So my son was carrying her up and down three flights of stairs so she could go do her business. And he got COVID. He had been vaccinated. So he got a mild case when he got mm. it. He's still carrying this dog up and yeah. down the stairs. Oh my gosh. But, He's getting a workout. Well, they are, they are, you know, extensions of the family, you know, yeah. my dog Cooper will be at my wedding. Hopefully <laughs> he won't lose the rings when he's walking, a, when he's walking it down the aisle. But, it, you know, I don't think 10 years ago, you would have seen too many dogs in wedding ceremonies. Now it's kind of a common thing. So when you think about how, you know, cultures, et cetera, have changed over the years. And I think the, uh, there have been some Harvard studies that have been done. The mere fact of owning a pet means you're less likely to be depressed, can extend your life expectancy. So there's a lot of benefits to having a pet in, in the household. And I think it's important for us to pay that back towards them. Sure. I mean, uh, we have a very loud cat that keeps us up at night. So it may be that our life expectancy goes down a little bit. Well, she's really old. So she's, yeah. yeah. But Jen, what are your thoughts? I am an animal lover. Hopefully um, you couldn't hear all my dogs barking and making noises in the back. And I just love your mission. I love what you're doing. I am an avid dog rescuer, foster, whatever. If there is an animal in need, it always finds my front door, especially if it has a large vet bill behind it. I hope that you continue to spread the message and educate people on what we're feeding our animals and it really does impact their health just like what we eat impacts our health so i'm going to help spread your mission to to all of my uh, dog loving and animal loving rescuers oh thank you and i really appreciate it a lot uh, what you've mentioned in terms of growing and scaling your team at pet plate you know we're now a team of 20 to uh, 25 full-time you know you group and some part-time people are probably closer to 25. We have an outsourced dev shop. So we've been growing and scaling since we launched the business back in 2016. And, you know, figuring out and hiring is definitely a hard thing for startups to do, particularly when you, you know, don't necessarily have the funds for certain higher level executives. So you delivered a lot of really good feedback on your part. So Ashish, do you have a dog? I don't have a dog, but my two kids... I think they love, I mean, they're addicted to dogs. I feel like I'll end up with a dog soon. (laughs) (laughs) So Kenya, I know you have a dog. What do you think? I have a dog and I also have a sister who's a veterinarian. So we grew up with a very health pet consciousness in our household. And I just was curious, are there any ingredients in the pet food that's out there now that should be red flags for us? Like I know for humans, it's like no red dye, no red, like, but are, is it the same when it comes to pet food? Yeah, actually a lot of uh, retailers, for example, Petco just said they're going to not sell dog food, et cetera, that has artificial preservatives, artificial colors and things like that. And the many more. So a lot of those things are now starting to make their way out of pet food, but yeah, unfortunately, when you look at just the overall protein content and where that comes from, it comes from basically meat meals. So you can envision that as basically a protein powder that's coming from the dead dying disease, the four D's that we mentioned from earlier. And that's you know what we're feeding our pets. And unfortunately, that's not as digestible as fresh cooked real ingredients, et cetera, that we use at Pet Plate. So whereas pet plate and we've done the testing would be, you know, 90 plus percent digestible on protein, fat, and, and overall. So that means you're actually getting and absorbing and utilizing the nutrients of 
kibble might be in the 60s or 70s, right, because of that. So, you know, that's where I think it's just up to the pet parent to decide a, you know, what they would like to feed their pet, what better fits with their lifestyle. And, you know, pet play, we work hard to continue innovating so that we can address different spectrums of pet owners and what they can afford and like what works for their lifestyles. So when you talk about cooking dog food, is all dog food cooked or is this something special that you do? Most dog food would be cooked, like kibble is cooked like 500 degrees Fahrenheit. So really is zapping most of the ingredients of like, you know, their nutrients, et cetera. Uh, But at Pet Plate, we do a fresh cuddle cooking process, very similar to if you were probably trying to make dog food at home on a stovetop. You know, when I started Pet Plate, I quit my job in private equity and I was biking around New York City delivering dog food, making it out of a commercial kitchen. And we've really modeled the the larger Pet Plate process now because we've shipped upwards of like 20 million meals to pet parents across the U.S. now. Um, so we have a large USDA kitchen that makes all of our food and we kettle cook everything fresh. It's in flash frozen and pre-portioned for each one of our pet parents and then packed in distribution and shipped directly to their door. So we're a direct consumer business. Uh, We're starting to dabble in retail. So brick and mortar has been a new experience for us there. But in general, our cooking process follows the same process as if you were making a high-end chili. Some people do feed their dogs raw pet food. Uh, That's another popular and growing segment in in the category, Uh, trying to just get back to, you know, ancestral roots for dogs. But a lot of our pet parents, you know, would prefer not to handle and deal with raw meat. So we're a really nice, you know, a middle ground of something that's lightly processed, balanced and designed by a veterinarian and then convenient. Ronaldo, do you have any plans for cat food? And that's my first question. My second question is, why do my cats hate the food that I cook on the stove for them from like good ingredients? They won't touch it. (laughs) So we are working on cats. Uh, The funny thing about cats is they're very, very finicky. So I believe dogs might have 500 taste buds um, and can only pick up a couple of different flavors. Cats, I believe, actually have more taste buds than humans and are notoriously finicky. Texture is also very important to cats. So there's a lot of research and data that goes into making sure that, you know, the right flavor profiles are being added. So at Pet Plate, we add, you know, all natural flavors to our food. Also, maybe you're not using things that we would use at Pet Plate, such as like liver and other things that would be highly palatable to a cat. So if you toss in some of those things, it may help. You have to be careful with this, but they do like humans enjoy a little bit of salt. So making sure that there's, you know, the right flavor profile for or a cat is sometimes uh, sometimes hard to do. Uh, so we're doing a lot of work and research on that before we launch products, uh, just because of how finicky they can be. But hopefully in the next uh, you know 18 months, we'll have something in the market for that. Yeah, I think you're really onto something here. I do think it's e- going to be easier to get the dogs to like it than the cats, because I have tried this for cats, but I'm waiting to try what you come up with. I will certainly try it for my cats. Yeah, certainly if it's healthier, maybe that means fewer trips to the vet too. For our listeners, if you want to find this dog food soon to be cat food as well, it's pet plate.com. Pretty easy to remember. You are listening to Passage to Profit, the Inventors Show with Richard Elizabeth Gearhart, and we will be right back. There's never been a better time to start your own business. The opportunities are infinite and only limited by your imagination and enthusiasm. At Gearhart Law, we believe the most successful companies all have one thing in common. They start with a solid foundation first. Gearhart Law has years of experience protecting entrepreneurs, ideas, and brands using patent, trademark, and copyright protection. So if you have a new consumer product, a new software application that you're planning to build or sell, or a brand or company name that you want to protect, contact the experts at www.gearheartlaw.com. Our professionals will create a custom strategy designed to fit your needs and your budget. All of our attorneys are passionate about protection, licensed, and qualified to represent you before the United States Patent and Trademark Office. Don't start your project without calling us first. Visit gearheartlaw.com. Together, we can change the world. Visit G-E-A-R-H-A-R-T-L-A-W.com. This ad has been read by a non-attorney spokesperson. Now more with Richard and Elizabeth. Passage to Profit. Why don't you give a little recap about who is here? That's an excellent idea. (laughs) I'm glad I thought of it. So our guest was Jen Thornton with 304 Coaching. 
if you need to put together a team that will make your profits soar, then you need to talk to Jen because she's an expert at putting together highly effective teams. Performance counts in the entrepreneurial world. And it really comes down to the people that you've got and how they work together. The number's 304 and the word coaching.com. Then we had Ashish Tosh Nawal, just a groundbreaking innovator in the digital space, really. And Ashish received an email from Steve Jobs, which must have been very motivating. Ashish, can you tell us what you were doing that caught Steve Jobs' eye? Yeah, so we started YML in 2009. This was right at the beginning of when App Store was launched. And uh, we were working with the Montessori school to bring teaching, you know, A, B, C, D, one, two, three, four on iPad. And this was like very early days, app number 54 or something. And we launched this app. And in 48 hours, we got this email. I love what you're doing. Let me know how I can help best Steve. And when we got this, we were like, there's no way, you know, this is what we think this is. Like someone is playing around with us. We exchange few emails and, you know, the rest is history. It was definitely one of the things which kept us going. I mean, it took us three to four years early on to get, you know, a solid footing into the business. And that email was definitely very inspirational. So you can find Ashish Toshnawal with Y Media Labs at yml.co. Truly an innovator in the digital space for brands. If you want to get ahead of your competitors, go look at his website. And a future thinker too. So always nice to be in the company of a future thinker. Right. And we had Kenya Gibson, Gibson with the P, Kenya Gibson at iHeartMedia.com did our power move. Kenya actually was the one who had the idea for this show. Yeah, and- We have been running with it for more than three years since. And she's very creative and has incredible ideas for her clients at iHeart. If you want to be on the radio, which is much cheaper than TV, or you want digital marketing ideas, Kenya's the person to ask. And then last, but certainly not least, we had Ronaldo Webb with Pet Plate, who certainly gave me an education on what we're giving our animals to eat and <laughs> I know it's kind and of why disgusting. we should change that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean the the four D's. If you didn't hear his presentation, you need to go back and listen to the podcast. We're gonna, Those four D's are kind of gross. We're gonna have to start <laughs> trapping live animals for our cats. And I the think cats that's already the getting only... themselves. But anyway, his Website is petplate.com. If you want to feed your animals, dogs right now, but cats soon, higher quality food than you can buy at the grocery store right now. That's where you need to go. We want to see the gourmet version too. So (laughs) it's just not limited to everyday food, but we want those special anniversaries and dog birthdays and everything. We want something special. Exactly. So if you missed any of these wonderful presenters, because everybody here was really good, they'll be on our YouTube channel. They'll be on our podcast, wherever you listen to your podcast. And I would encourage you to hear what they have to say. Absolutely. Before we go, we'd like a few comments from our guests in closing. So Jen, what are your thoughts? What I love about our time together today is all of us have had a different idea and there is no crossover. There's nothing similar that any of us do, but all of us came together and had this incredible conversation about creating um, a business that's successful. And I just hope that reminds all your listeners, if you're thinking about an idea and you think, gosh, could it ever be done? You know, here today, there are five different people with five different businesses and it absolutely can be done. Ashish? Yeah, I think my takeaway would be that culture is not what you put in slide decks and on your wall. Culture is a lot about the action you take and not just what you say, but what you do. It's a lot about the kind of action which is promoted in the company, the kind of action which is discouraged in the company. That's what culture is. Great. Ronaldo? My big takeaway from this is really think about what's going to make a difference in the future and how you can add that into your business, whether it's in the products you're thinking about developing, how you're using technology or what's going to help you protect your company in terms of the next event, you know, probably people. So I think a lot of good insights coming out from today. Kenya, those are tough acts to follow. <laughs> oh my but... God, you put me last. I'm like, well, how am I going to that? What I will say is I think I would try to find a common thread in the conversations that we have here on Passage to Prof. And I would say the common thread today is a sustainability, right? Because we talked to Jen about building a sustainable workplace and a workforce. And then we talked about sustainable shopping experiences with Y Media Labs and then sustainable eating for pets. 
right? With, with pet plates. So I just always love to have conversations where it all kind of pulls together into one common theme. So that's my takeaway for today. That was very artful. I also want to take the opportunity to thank our team that makes all of this possible. Our producer, Noah Fleischman, program coordinator, Alicia Morrissey, our video editor, Chatterboss, and the whole iHeart team. And to Jen's point, without Noah Fleischman, none of this is possible. That's right. He's the real purse maker. He was a good choice for this team. He really was. We'll be back next week. Don't forget to find us on social media, Passage to Profit Show. 